This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss trends currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at Goldman. Today, we're at the Goldman Sachs Builders and Innovators Summit in Santa Barbara, California. Each year, we bring 100 of the most exciting founders and CEOs of early-stage companies, together with more seasoned entrepreneurs, for discussions on building businesses. And we're going to talk to two of those entrepreneurs today. But first, I'd like to welcome David Solomon, the co-head of our investment banking division, to set the table for today's discussion. David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jake. So, David, before we begin talking about the conference, I want to take a few minutes to discuss some of the top-of-mind issues for your business right now. Let's start with IPOs. This year has been a little sluggish for IPOs. Started off terribly, picked up a little bit. Should we expect anything different next year in 2017? Well, I think the year started with something that appears now to be a little bit of an aberration period instead of a trend. And so we walked into 2016, and markets were really in disarray relatively quickly. Massive change in the price of oil, confidence shattered, market traded off about 10% globally. And since then, we saw a very, very quick recovery by the end of the first quarter. That environment obviously does not breed confidence, and as a result, IPO activity really slowed to a halt. In the first quarter, we saw just a billion dollars of IPO volume. And year to date, while we've picked up in the second and third quarter, We've really only raised about $17.5 billion in the U.S. through IPO activity. And that's way behind what you'd see in a typical year. In a typical year, over the last five years, we've raised on average about $55 billion of proceeds through the IPO market. So things feel better now. Activities picked up. Last two quarters have been 8 to $9 billion a quarter. And so it seems like we should see a pickup in activity. But IPOs are really a function of confidence. And to the degree that there are things going on in the marketplace that are affecting confidence, I think the IPR market will continue to be sluggish. We've had Brexit this year. We have this presidential election that certainly is not breeding a lot of confidence. Once we get past all that, barring any other sort of a dislocation, I think you might expect to see IPO activity normalize. So with the low interest rate environment, low inflation, debt issuance has been a big, big route for many. There's some signals, at least here in the U.S., that interest rates are poised to uh, rise. Inflation's beginning to tick up a little bit. What are you telling clients right now who ask, what are you saying? Is now the right time to borrow? Is it too late? If you need capital and you're considering borrowing money to meet capital needs, never been a better time to borrow money. And one of the things that I think has been amazing, if we were sitting here two years ago and you looked at where the world was, you'd say there had never been a better time to borrow money and it's only gotten better. You know, we're operating in a world where rates are really zero. There's 15 to $20 trillion of debt securities that yield less than zero. This is unprecedented, massive amount of monetary policy around the world. At some point, that's going to reverse. And the first place where we see signs of it reversing is here in the United States, where we've been a relatively long recovery. And the Fed's now signaling that at some point, they're going to start to raise rates again. So that process has been slow. I don't think it'll be abrupt. I think there's a reasonable chance we'll see an interest rate increase again by the end of the year. And then we'll probably see some more in 2017. But a lot of that will, again, depend on what's going on broadly with economic growth. But capital's cheap, and people are way out on the risk curve. And so if you want to borrow money, now is a good time to borrow money if you're an issuer. So we're here at Builders and Innovators, and we bring together exciting entrepreneurs, people building businesses across different kinds of industries. This is the fifth year that you've hosted this summit. And in those five years, we've seen a lot, a lot of innovation the ways we consume media, disruptive technologies like artificial intelligence, virtual reality. 
how does this event manage to reflect the innovation that is sort of cropping up from year to year in the American economy? Well, it's something we work hard to try to curate in the broadest way possible. We want the entrepreneurs that we recognize and we bring to the summit each year to represent in some way a pretty good diversity of what's going on in the U.S. economy with respect to new businesses, disruption, change. And so we have a process where hundreds of companies are nominated to attend and a group of people sit down and really vet those companies with a goal of trying to find the ones that we think are the most interesting and also to make sure it's a diversified portfolio of businesses, activities, areas of the economy so that you're really getting the broadest sample set of what's going on. So obviously there's a bunch of companies here that are involved in technology and software very directly, but there are also all sorts of other industrial businesses, retail businesses, consumer brands, a real broad cross-section of what's going on in the economy today. And as we look back over the five years that we've been curating this event, I'd say it's a pretty good cross-section of change, disruption. Some of the companies work and are hugely successful. Others get some traction but don't really accelerate. And there's some where whatever the business plan was, it turns out that they needed to pivot or they needed to adjust or it just didn't work out altogether. But it gives you a great opportunity to get a view of kind of the new ideas and the new disruptions that are affecting the everyday world we live in. We're joined today by two of those entrepreneurs. Tata Harper, you're the founder and co-CEO of Tata Harper Skincare, and Tyler Haney, the founder and CEO of Outdoor Voices. Both of you were named to this list. Tyler, Tata, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for inviting us. So Very exciting. happy to be here. So Tyler, let's start with you. Um, Outdoor Voices builds itself as the technical apparel for recreation with a focus on doing things, as your hat says. That's your company's rallying cry, popular hashtag. Tell us about building a brand like this in what's an ultra-competitive space and how you've managed to really set Outdoor Voices apart and build that sort of distinctive brand. Sure. So I love activity for the joy of it rather than trying to shave seconds off of my time. So for me, it was really about building a brand that I resonated with, one about freeing fitness from performance. So Grew up in Boulder, Colorado. Throughout high school was an athlete and wore brands with this credo, harder, better, faster, stronger. And that made sense when the goal at the time was to cross the finish line first. But as soon as I was- not everyone's gonna be an endurance athlete. Exactly, yeah. As soon as I was no longer involved in competitive sports, activity took on a new meaning. For me, it was looking 30 years ahead. How am I going to get myself out there to be active on a daily basis? And my bet was, we need to build a brand that approaches activity differently, with moderation, with ease, with humor, with delight, built around this message of doing things. So getting out there, moving your body, having fun with friends outlasts a win. And we're finding that messaging and the community we're building around it resonating in a big way with people who are like, I'm not about winning. I, I want to just get out there every day. So Tati, your industry is no less competitive. Walk us through your thinking and preparation as you set out to start the company. <laughs> And what gave you the confidence that your commitment to all natural, non-toxic, and in many cases your own homegrown ingredients would resonate with today's consumer? To answer your first question about preparing to start this, I am an industrial engineer. Never, ever thought that I would be a beauty entrepreneur at all. However, I am from Colombia, and Latin women have like a very, um, a lot of appreciation for their beauty rituals. And for us, like really more is more. And it's very different than the American consumer that thinks that beauty, it's a luxury, that it's for once in a while. For us, it's like brushing our teeth, brushing our hair, it's just something that we do. 
But really, this started when my stepfather got diagnosed with cancer. This is like 12 years now. And I was living in Miami at the time, and he got treated here in the U.S. And he did a lot of Eastern and Western medicine. And I went with him to a lot of the doctors, a lot of the consultations. And there was this recurring theme about lifestyle. You know, I thought that it was going to be about operations and chemotherapy and all of those things. And there was a place for all of that. But it was really a learning experience about how to live today with everything that surrounds us and how to eat better, how to basically live better and everything that you do every day without even thinking about it and how much it compromises your health. So I started learning about toxic load and here I am thinking I know nothing. Like I'm here eating all this pesticide food, putting all this industrial chemicals in my skin. And really the real moment for me is that I was able to change everything except for skincare. Like when it came to skincare, I would go to department stores where I would typically go and buy my products and I would be like, I need something natural. And they'll be like, oh, sure, this this with algaes, there's this with roses. But then you turn around the box because I'm an engineer and, and I wanted to it. like go yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, you can I read I'm it. Like, I can't yeah, read it. Yeah, I see that algae there, but what's <laughs> all that other stuff? And I would go home and Google all these things and I would be just shocked like propylene glycol, antifreeze. Why am I putting that in my <laughs> eye? You know, like that sits in the machine that I just saw in that factory, you know, a while ago. So I had to learn a lot. And really for me, the beginning and the beginning years was really diving into how do we make this happen? How do we formulate a product that is superior, that it's better, that doesn't necessarily revolve around one ingredient, but when you buy one of our bottles, you get like multiple actives and a product that makes people's lives better. And that took like five years just to even be able to make that possible. So one of the things both your brands do really well is articulate this genuine commitment to health and wellness. And that definitely has to do a lot with the quality of your products, but it's also about how you communicate with customers. Talk a little bit about how you've built these brands and how you've defined what they stand for. Is that something you've kept close as your businesses have grown, that original vision you had? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, in the same way, it started with product. So for me, it was a personal pain point. I, one day out of, I think, at walking out of the gym was wearing like this bright neon kind of muscle mapping outfit, and I felt straight out of a Transformers movie. And I was like, <laughs> I'm really not trying to be like a superhero right now. Like this doesn't make sense. So for me, at that moment, I said, I, I want to set out to create my recreation uniform, best fitting kind of classic silhouettes that I can wear across a variety of activities. So I started investigating and being really curious about technical materials and found the mills that work with the biggest companies like Nike, Lulu, and Under Armour and went to them and said, here's the material I want to create. I want to create a material that functions in a similar way to these other brands, but makes you feel comfortable in your skin you're in. You're not trying to be superhuman. It's all about being human. And so starting with product was step one. I started wearing this product, got it on my friends and family, and, and we really started to grow organically from there. And our big bet was there's so many people who want to be more active in this world, but the moment they walk into one of these big stores and see, let's say, Steph Curry, I love Steph Curry, but that's intimidating, right? And so I wanted to create an offering that people could put on the clothes and feel empowered, feel like themselves and ready to participate. And the best example of this was Lena Dunham was the first celebrity to wear outdoor voices. She was learning to jog on the set of Girls, um, her HBO yeah. show, and she had one of our outfits on a, a top and a bottom, and she captioned it on Instagram, like, I feel swift, proud, and strong. I'm not about to be part of that triathlete life, but 
just getting out here, moving my body from my mind, I, I feel comfortable, I feel powerful, and, and Outdoor Voices and this notion of doing things has very much led me to feel this way. So that's the opportunity we want to create for everybody and inspire in others. And thinking about the name Outdoor Voices comes from when you're little and your mom's like, you surrender voice and, oh, and that yeah. spirit and kind of that energy. And, and really the opportunity is how do we allow other people to want to use and reignite that inspiration to use their Outdoor Voices and feel comfortable in doing that. And how about you? How did you think about, you, you come at, you're an engineer, so that's your background, but how did you begin to think about articulating how customers and consumers would think about your product? You know, for me, I spent zero time thinking about that, and I spent all my time thinking about the product. And I'm a firm believer that when you do consumer products, you should be more worried about your products than your image because I was so involved in the engineering and the formulation process and trying to make a product that was really superior in every way, which is what we offer to our customers, I ended up pouring all of my personal values and beliefs into the product. And then actually our product speaks to all those values and ended up speaking to everything that the company has been founded on, which is freshness, the idea of high quality, the idea of purity, and that's what translates. It really starts with the product. And it was so bad that five years into this, I had no idea what the packaging was going to be, what the colors were going to be, like none of it. Actually, we just hired our first marketing team and we are in our six-year anniversary. So it was really about making excellent products that people love using and that, again, just makes people's lives better. And by having a product that just have all of those values into it that just reflects overall, creates a halo effect over the brand. So both of you had a lot of success, but we know it's never perfect and easy. Talk a little bit about some of the more challenging times you've had. What are the biggest challenges you've had as you've sort of grown these businesses from nothing to where they are today? Early on, it was convincing people that this big vision around building the next global activewear brand, when you're talking about Nike and Under Armour and Lulu, that you actually would want to take that on, you know? And I remember meeting with investors early on and getting a lot of no's at first, but I became so focused on turning those no's into yeses and refining my pitch with every experience that the big vision became the reason people invested as they started to be convinced that this girl's going to get there. But that was the first hurdle to clear, absolutely laser focused on big vision and the challenge in the beginning. Similarly for me, I think that I had two big obstacles. The first one was really the formulation of the product because nothing like we've done has ever been done. And by that time was even like, people thought that I was nuts. But then once that's done and I realized how different we were, how precious you are and how amazing and different your products are and you actually go into the market and then you realize that the market has been overshadowed by all this skepticism that has come with natural products because the first generation natural product was more of a product that was formulated by the LOHAS movement, which is this whole lifestyle movement around being natural. And that's what really they focused on. But women don't buy skincare because they want to be part of a movement, part yeah. of a natural movement. They buy skincare because they want to see results and because they want their skin to be better. So because all of those natural products before that were launched more in like pharmacies and supermarkets, they were not high quality. They were not formulated well. Cohoba oil, I mean, that's natural, but is it going to take care of my wrinkles? Like, no. So I think that that was my biggest, biggest hurdle is really convincing people that this is the ultimate luxury, that actually natural products is the ultimate luxury, that it's really complicated science. 
But the good thing is that the wellness movement is just growing around the world. And now with information and the internet, like everybody can find out anything at you any can, moment. You can reach your audience. Yeah. Right? And people are really trying to live better globally, not only with their skincare, but with what they eat, with exercise, with meditation, sleeping better. So we're just a byproduct of that movement. And that's what really gave me the confidence of doing this because I'm like, I'm not the only woman looking for this, I'm sure. And as soon as people find out about what they're really putting on their skin, people are going to be horrified just like me. And this is just a better option. So why not? You know? So yeah, that's more or less how it happened for me. So David, you've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs. What are the most difficult challenges entrepreneurs face in the early stages of their startups? Well, starting a business is hard, and there are a lot of challenges when you start a business, and we've just heard about different challenges from two different people in different businesses. But when you try to connect the dots and say, what are some of the common themes, I think there's one that comes back a lot with a lot of people, and that's to execute on starting a new business. You've got to hire great people. and You've got to have people who believe in your vision and are passionate and are really connected to what you as a founder want, and that's hard. It's hard to find the right people. It's hard you know, to learn that skill. It's hard to screen them. It's hard to retain them. It's hard to develop them. And so one of the struggles that businesses have is as they get started, you've got a good vision, you get started and it starts to take off. There's a point in time when you go from having a small team. It's very easy when you have a small team. Five, 10 people. Five, 10, 15, 20 people, you can put everybody in a room. But as you start getting to 30 people, 50 people, 100 people, 200 people, the whole dynamic changes materially and there are a whole set of skills that are necessary to make that all work. And, you know, I think young businesses struggle with that. But it's always super important because as you grow, you need people to execute. And having a culture and being able to make that work, as I talk to people that are running, was I was going to say for a moment, young people, but it's actually people, young and old, running young businesses. That's a common struggle that people have to get through. How have you found that challenge of going from really yourselves, in some instances, to much, much larger companies? Yeah, I've thought back to playing sports when you're little and thinking about the team. And, you know, you need someone who's great at a three-point shot. You need your point guard. You need your post player. And ultimately, as I look ahead, I'm like, I want to be Bob Bauman. But, yes, day one, it's just you. You're not Bob Bauman. There's no one to really coach yet. And so when I was first hiring, it was for breadth of experience, so people who could go a mile wide and an inch deep. And over time, as we've grown, it's now for depth of experience, so people who have particular skills that they can own and really be great at. And now we're at a stage where we're looking for player coaches. So it's people who come in and really lead and steer the ship rather than cover kind of issues that may need attention at the time. So yes, this player coach thing is the stage we're at. Player coaches that can come in, set up the framework, and lead and recruit a best-in-class team. Have you had a hard time getting people given where you're operating in Vermont and sort of rural Vermont yeah. uh, has been hard. But I mean, you've got people outside Vermont, but... I wouldn't say that it's been a big problem for us because we attract a lot of people that just love what we stand for. And that's probably been the biggest thing for me. Like, I know that some people need to hire people for experience. I love to hire people that are really passionate about what we do and the love being part of a movement that it's changing the world for the better. And that's really what I believe in. It's people that are passionate about what we stand for and whether they have experience or not, because I believe that anybody can learn anything. If you're passionate, you can really change the world. So that's probably like one of the biggest things for me aside from 
organizational skills because as you are a young company and especially a young company that it's growing and that gets presented with multiple opportunities and we can do many things it's really important to have people that understand their priorities at all times so that you don't get deviated and waste time in things that are irrelevant for the business at the moment so i think that organizational skills for us it's paramount so that people can always learn how to prioritize their projects because people are just wearing so many hats are there certain questions you love to ask when you interview people? Oh yeah, absolutely. This one's more of a culture question, but we go, okay, you have 60 seconds, name as many pastas as you possibly can. And people are like, really, what, what? Fettuccine, Alfredo, la, la, la. Um, I love that one just to kind of gauge or temperature check someone's kind of ability to, you know, laugh or kind of be humorous or enjoy engaging with others. So that's my absolute favorite interview question. <laughs> I, I always ask them about their lifestyle. Do they eat organic? Tell me what you eat. What do you clean your house with? What environmental practices do you have? Like, so that I can gauge their involvement in our movement. And that's probably like one of the biggest things that I always ask is, do you smoke? How do you do live? You, how yeah. do you live? Like, okay. tell me, how do you live? Like, why, why are you here? Like, what motivated you to come? And why do you want to join our company? And that's always important so I can see like who's on our same wavelength. Yeah, I think the why are you here question is key. For yeah. me, it's do you have this unbounded enthusiasm for helping others lead sustainably active lives? And for me, it's like, are you wearing after voices? Show up to the interview and are doing things that. Why are you here? Yeah. How are you going to contribute? How are you already doing so? Yeah, and it's important also to have people that are knowledgeable around that because our customers come to us as a source of education and knowledge. Like when I go to events and I go a lot to stores because I've learned so much just by even going to stores about the business. Watching how and, people shop. Yeah, how people how shop, how are in different stores, like the difference between selling at department store versus selling at Sephora. Yeah. You know, Neiman's and Sephora are totally different environments and the selling environment's totally different. But I I love connecting and educating a lot with my customers, so I love doing a lot of classes. And being able to educate and really speak to relevant things and have knowledge, it's important. So that's why it's so important for me that the people in my team either have deep knowledge on nutrition or they have deep knowledge on how to exercise or how to detoxify or whatever, you know, that it's part of this big movement that, you know, about living better. So that's a really important question for me. So David, you've spent a lot of time in a different kind of company, but thinking about how to make the career path inside banking attractive. What advice do you have? You've seen a lot of different trends in what people care about and what they want to do. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs about how to make your company a great place to work? In the context of thinking about the experiences we have where we're managing thousands of younger employees who are entering, building a career early stage, there are many, many complicated layers to that. But to try to break it into something that I think is relevant for everybody, whether you have five employees or 20 employees or 30,000 employees, the thing that I point to is feedback. I think at the end of the day, people in their work, they want to have a good experience, they want to be interested in what they're doing, and they want the work that they do to be motivating or have meaning or have reason. Uh, they want to be connected to it, but they also want feedback about how they're doing. And everybody gets very, very busy, and it's very, very important to find ways to give your people feedback about how they're doing. And, and you deliberately carve out a lot of time for that. Right? I try. To be perfectly honest, it's something that's hard to do to the degree that everybody needs it. Now, if you're in an organization where you're starting a new business and you have a team of 10, 
then it can be doable. But there are hundreds of people that want feedback from me. And so I try, don't always do this as successfully as I'd like, but I try to work it into the conversations that you wind up having with people about all different things and finding ways to find things that people have done that you can reference or make them feel good about and also take opportunities in the right way to talk to people about things that you'd see that would help them advance or would help them improve. And so I think at the end of the day, everyone, no matter who they're working for, what they're doing, they want to feel pride in what they do and they want to get feedback about how they're doing. And somehow if you tie those two things together, there can be a great tolerance for a bunch of the other things that you have to work on, especially as you get into a bigger, more complicated organization. One of the great things about this conference is you just hear some people you've never heard of before, some people you have heard of before, but you get to see them up close, and you learn some interesting and new things. What is one thing that you picked up here that you just had not thought of that you might take back with you to work and might change the way you think about how you run your business or your life? I just connect with a lot of what people have to say. You know, like I've participated in a lot of the different speeches and conferences that have been happening and I just really connect with every story, you know, and then you realize that there's just this thread You're that not connects alone. us all. Yeah, that yeah. we're not alone, <laughs> that all those challenges are the same challenges that everybody has when they're starting a business in a big degree and you feel that we're not doing that bad in the big context of things. So, you know, it's actually made me feel really good about where we're at and what we're doing. And, and it's also very inspiring being surrounded by so many people that are in their own way, again, helping make this a better place, which is what entrepreneurs do. They see problems and then they have the courage to actually go and solve those problems and help out in their own little way, contribute with their effort to make this a better place. Tyler? Yeah, purpose was definitely a common theme on the stage with everybody. I think the other thing, Steve Rails was speaking at lunch, and he ended his talk with two words, long-term, which is specifically or particularly helpful when you're in the thick of it, when you're like thinking only the day ahead or three weeks ahead. Like Take a step back at this conference and say, it is about the long-term. It's about making the right sustainable decisions for the long-term. And he's done that, obviously maybe the best out of anybody in the world. So that's pretty incredible. I love what he added, too. He said, there aren't that many people thinking about it, so you could own the space. Totally. Right? So, mm -hmm. so that was really good. <laughs> David, you've heard it all, seen it all. What do you think? There are a lot of things that just listening to all the speakers over the course of the last couple of days that reinforce things that I've heard, seen, tried to execute on over a long period of time. Long term's a good message. But there's also a message that comes out of all of this that resonates with me that you see in different ways that has to do with how people communicate. And, you know, one of the takeaways that I have kind of watching and looking is, you know, as I meet people that are starting young businesses, there's a real high correlation to success and an ability to communicate and connect with people. And how you do that, how you do it effectively, you know, really matters. The session today, on radical candor, you know, resonated with me, you know, a lot because it gets to the same point. There's the positive communication of being able to articulate your story. And we talked about that a lot. How do you articulate your story? Do you make that really work? But communication skills and personal skills, the ability to connect with people, it matters a lot in business. And I think there's a huge correlation to getting over the difficult times and succeeding and getting these businesses to a place where they can really sustain because the people that are running them 
don't just have great vision, great execution skills, but they've got terrific communication skills. And I think that's a common thread that I see everywhere in business. And I think it's really amplified when you get a group like this together and you get to look at a broad package of these kinds of people that are succeeding. That's a great place to close. Thank you all for joining me here today. Thank you for Thank inviting you. us. Thank you, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges to Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on October 20th, 2016. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.